This is Old Man Rolling Dice. This is Jason from Old Men Rolling Dice. We're here this afternoon with DM Jeremy and Judge Brian to discuss the OSR, the retro gaming uh, sensation, and <laughs> and aspects of the, uh, the gaming system that involves comparisons between modern gaming and the games of our past. Some of our past. Some of our past. Some of our past. Some of our past. So the first, the the first, we'll we'll just introduce uh, Brian. It's Brian, Judge Brian, uh, from the Brantford area. And uh, can we mention the Rumble Academy? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, a jujitsu coach. I am yes. I'm a black belt uh, with the Carlson Gracie team. Um, I teach Brazilian jiu-jitsu here in town. So if you're in the area, that would be something cool to check out. And as well uh, is a avid old school gamer, or a uh, the term's grognard, is it not? Grognard, yeah. Grognard. And I think grognard. that's from a French term. It means old soldier, uh, and. Um, it was made from the sounds that uh, the old men of the village, and at this time they were all, you know, bats. Yeah. And uh, it, it's, I think, derived from a French word that means grumbling. Okay. The men who yeah. grumble. Yeah. So a grognard, it's kind of been co-opted into the OSR. They've kind of owned it. They took, they, they like, yeah. it's not, it's not sort of a negative connotation there. Right. The it's, guys that call I'm a gro- that. Yeah, it would be like yeah. calling yourself a curmudgeon. Okay, I'm a grognard. So I there's a, a website. Yeah. Uh, there's a resource for grognards. It's a term used by older guys who role play. Yeah. Like about themselves. Okay. Like, oh, a grognard. Like you're happy to see older guys. That, like, so, <laughs> and there are older guys here today. That's for sure. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah so, this is true. So, yeah. so old school gaming, uh, maybe we should just for our listeners... We're not talking about uh, we're not talking about Dungeons and Dragons necessarily. Uh, there are some old systems of Dungeons and Dragons that that we we will be talking about, like the expert basic expert system or original Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, but we are also talking about something that I used to co- refer to as a retro clone or a uh, or an old school clone. Games like uh, Dungeon Crawl Classics, uh, Swords and Wizardry. And Labyrinth Lord. Labyrinth Lord. Oh yes. Basic uh, fantasy. Would Castles and Crusades call Castles and Crusades is actually the first of the ones that came after the OGL. And they just did a Kickstarter, I think, last year on that. Yeah, so I think they're Troll Lord games and uh, they have a lot of product out there. I may have backed it. <laughs> okay. I yeah. backed too much. Yeah. Uh I'm pretty sure I'm owed some Castles and Crusades when it releases. Yeah, but. it's a very popular system. And after the OGL came out in 2000, that was the first. I believe it came out in uh, 04. And then Osric came out shortly after and Labyrinth Lord. Because of the open license, we now have Paizo. Paizo came directly out of that open license. Right. Uh, Paizo grabbed the publishing rights for Dragon Magazine and Dungeon Magazine. Uh, this would eventually become... Uh, Pathfinder and all the rest of it, Starfinder, um, and there's all kinds of other companies that were able to publish under that license. Uh, anybody who likes the DMs Guild or Drive Through RPG, uh, these are all things that came about thanks to that open license. But I didn't realize that that open license is also what opened the door for like basic Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, it it really did. Um, for all almost all of the. OGL game, except for one. So Hackmaster, 
has a different story. So it's actually um, uh, a retro, it's a retro clone. I wouldn't yeah. put it in OSR, but it's a retro clone of kind of a, a version of Advanced D&D in between first edition and second edition. Yes. And it came out of Jolly Blackburn, had a magazine called Shadus back in the 90s. And there was a three or four page comic at the back called Knights of the Dinner Table. And it was crudely drawn, but they played a fictitious game called Hackmaster, which was really first edition D&D. And the GM was sadistic, and the players were so traumatized from years of this guy just taking his anger at the world out on him. For them to enter a room could be a three-hour session, because they'd have to check for the traps around the door. They would be casting spells inside the door to see what was going on. Uh, you know, everything was a mimic, and he, <laughs> and, and then they just would do something that, you know, he would describe what they'd missed, and he'd be like, oh, but you missed this, didn't yeah. you? I, I actually and forgot then, about Hackmaster. I had a copy of Hackmaster at one yeah. point, and I think I sold it in a garage, like, I, you can all, my problem is I pick up all these role-playing games, and then I never have time to play them all. Yeah, that's, <laughs> so, <laughs> I, think I, I think I ended up selling Hackmaster in either a yeah. used game sale or a garage sale or something, but yeah, I remember reading it and thinking it was very tongue-in-cheek, there was a lot of, uh, oh, a lot of in-humor, and, uh, yeah. so they did a series of modules, so I think instead of the Keep on the Borderlands, it was the Little Keep on the Borderlands, yeah, and, yeah. and you know how it has the owl bear being fended off by the guys in the cover? Yeah. This was an owl bear like, ripping people in half, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but he made a deal separate with TSR or WOTC, whoever, I'm, I'm not sure about the year it came up, but that was outside of the OGL. And I think that's the only license that was outside of the OGL where they had their own, they actually had a contract to, mm. to do this one game. But when they did the OGL, it allowed people to, cause they didn't restrict the time. Like it was, this is the game. These are the parameters of the game. And, you know, have at it. So there were some things that you will never see in another game, though. Like, they retain full rights to Beholder. So yeah, exactly. Never, you'll never see anything called a Beholder. Yeah. And They're a, called Eye Tyrants or, yes, yeah, okay, you know, absolutely. Deadly Spears and or same something. with their Mind Flares. Mind Flares are definitely yes. their property. Yeah. Um, these were things that were original because most of it's borrowed. Like, you couldn't trademark a Minotaur because that comes from Greek mythology. You couldn't do a Banshee because that right. just comes from, you know... Exactly. Yeah. Medieval history. So it's just sort of their core sort of the um, things that they created. Things like owl bears and rust monsters and gelatinous cubes and. Uh, yeah, I think that that a lot of that came from appendix end stuff. Okay. So uh, those those you can have in other, and and I've seen them in other games. I'm actually not sure about gelatinous cube, but. Um, yeah, I'm not sure about that one either. That one they they I don't know that you can. Uh, I don't know if you can copyright a jelly. <laughs> yeah. And there's things like the puddings and the oozes, right? Yeah. So the monsters that are really specific. Like, there's something iconic about a beholder. There's something iconic about a mind flare. But when they did the OGL, it opened the door for people to go back as far as they wanted and say, this was the game that we liked. But there's certain things about it that I would fix. Like, if I was going to do it today, I would probably have an ascending armor class. I think that it's easier to get your head around. And if you want to make it consistent, you uh, want to have high rolls always be good, right? So that's an easy way to do it without doing some mental gymnastics with fake goes. Because that's what we used to do. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But then if you wanted to do, if you wanted to do it property, properly, like the way Gary Gagax intended in Advanced D&D, you also had to take into account your weapon speed your height, 
because medium and small opponents had a different adjustment than large opponents, and then there was a weapon speed adjustment. So it was the yeah, armor class. Or the weapon speed and the old ones. Yeah. Yeah, and and you because technically, if I remember correctly, like it, let's say a dagger adds two to your initiative, and a longsword adds, I don't. I'm just making numbers up here. It's like minus two. Like ten or something. But I thought the second attack, like if you had multiple attacks, you basically just had to wait the time of your weapon speed to take your next attack. So it would be possible for someone to squeeze in a couple attacks with a small weapon before someone would get that big weapon around on you. Maybe I'm wrong on that. Uh, well, I think the GMs kind of interpreted the rules, however... They well, this, and this is the problem. Makes with, sense at their table. In our pre-talk before we got recording, we were talking about that first edition players. You'll find a lot of people that say they played first editions in Dungeons and Dragons, but my argument is that they really probably didn't, because I started playing Advancers and Dragons. I think when I was twelve. There's no way a twelve-year-old can grasp everything that Gygax put into those books. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it, I was playing Dungeons and Dragons, but. Yeah, and if everybody is in agreement that what this rule means is this, therefore there's no unexpected outcomes. Yeah. But it used to be quite the thing, because you would roll your d20, and then you would have to adjust it. So you would say, um, these are the armor classes that I hit, but then if you're using, um, you know, a long sword is slower than a short sword, slower than a da- which is slower than a dagger, and then you had to adjust it according to the size of your opponent. So there yeah. were two or three other things, depending on the circumstances. And they did different damages, depending on... Right, it did different damages. So depending the on the damage size of the opponent was, you were the, hitting. The damage was different according to the size. And the weird thing is, is that the original rules of D&D were such that everything was open to interpretation. And they wanted to really make it a competitive thing, because they wanted to have tournaments. So at the first uh, Gen mm-hmm. Cons, they had... Comp- like, uh, the original... Do you guys have the Art and Arcana book? I don't. Okay, I if, don't, if you can, if you can pick up the boxed set, the the big one, it mm. comes with a bunch of ephemera. But one of them is a mimeographed reproduction of the original uh, Tomb of Horrors game with the okay. hand drawn things in it. And it that was, I have. Okay, so and for tournament play. Right, and they wanted to ma- they wanted to use tournaments. So and yeah. if you want it to be fair for everybody, everybody has to be playing under the same rule set. And that was supposed to be the reason why AD&D was created. Like he had rules for everything because he wanted it to be a competitive sport. And if you look at early modules, so if you look at um, the Slavers one, the Slaver Stockades, A A1234 a1 specifically has a map that has areas that are shaded differently because the shaded areas were not included in the tournament because they didn't want the them going all willy-nilly all over the dungeon. Right. So the dungeon was streamlined down for tournament play. And then if you bought the module, you could you open it all the up. Whole thing. Right. But for tournament play, you only played in a specific yeah, and there's some that, uh, I think it's the Hidden Shrine of Tamoashan. Yes. Uh, that was originally a tournament module, yes. and it had a different name. But if you look at the art, like it, it's I, I could have drawn it, you know. And like the Ghost Tower of Inverness uh, was a, a tournament module. Mm-hmm. So they wanted to make it competitive, so you had to have, have a standard rule set. And it was also a way for Gary to push Arneson out, because he didn't get author credit on any of the advanced D&D. No, he didn't, yeah. Which is why he made the claim that 
This is a completely separate game. It's not based in basic. Um, and it, if you want to look, there's lots of documentaries out about that too, actually on YouTube yeah, and stuff yeah. about the um, the split between Arneson and Gygax, uh, Greyhawk versus Blackmoor, mm-hmm. uh, the whole the whole bit. Nobody thinks of a role playing game as being a competitive game, right? It seems like there's, yeah. there's sort of competitive games in sports, and then there's this sort of storytelling, sort of the fact that you get this Venn diagram where you get this overlap is really neat. When I was a kid, uh, well, I say kid, but when I was a teenager, uh, McMaster University, their role playing club ran tournaments, and they ran competitive tournaments. And I remember going and competing in them, and you, you tried to get as far through the dungeon as possible before the party wipe came. Yeah. The party wipe always came, but it was how far, how far can you, you get? Yeah, and I, they're, all grind, they're usually designed as Oh, they're horrible grinders. grinders. Yeah. They're just like, they will chew you up and spit you out. And I had a great time. Yeah. A great time. It's a it's a big thing of major cons. At Gary Con on the Saturday night, they do the tournament, and there's probably 100 tables with six to seven people at each table. And it's serious business, and they give nice prizes too, but it's... Yeah. Uh, it's serious business for people. So, when we, so just to swing us back on topic yeah. here, unless you have something else. No, to add, no, it's, just, it's an odd thing to think of it as being a competitive sort of game. So when we talk, so this is what we're talking about with old school games, and we don't have time to cover every old school game. Obviously, we're going to focus, I think, mostly on Dungeon Crawl Classic, as Judge Brian, that is his wheelhouse. It is. So I had been introduced to this game uh, through forums, actually. I think it was on Reddit, and people were talking about OSR. So I had played a few OSR games. I had Osric, which is um, old-school resource something-something, but it was essentially first edition AD&D, and a, a couple of adventures for it. And it's a solid system. If you're looking for a first edition AD&D clone, it's good. And I also had Labyrinth Lord, which I'm, I'm still playing now. I'm actually doing a Labyrinth Lord campaign with my kids uh, using the Advanced Labyrinth Lord rules that just came out. Um, and it's a BX clone. So I played those, but then I wanted something that was maybe um, less of the, you know, the, the basic D&D thing. And I mean, not basic D&D, but the, the standard D&D trope where... You cast your spell and it's gone. You have to rest to recover it. I wanted something that um, didn't make the wizard feel like he was a one and done player. And then what are you doing? Just throwing darts. Trying to stay alive, throwing darts, <laughs> you know, use your yeah. dagger, something comes up. And somebody had recommended DCC because it's so unpredictable and chaotic. So I looked at it and I I investigated further. I read the rules and I'm like, this looks like the game for me and I ran a few sessions and I think that when you read it you think okay this could be fun I see where it could be fun but when you actually sit down and play it and you start seeing how the classes slash races interact with each other and how the game just all fits together so well it just hits that sweet spot for me and I really liked that it is very firmly based in the appendix and literature so the stuff in so let's let's just break there for a second. Appendix N, because I like to think that I know my game, but I did not know about Appendix N until we sat down at this table here tonight. And I learned about it within the last forty-eight hours. So, okay. so Jason, <laughs> so let's talk about just quickly what Appendix N is. Okay, so at the 
back of the very first edition, so first edition AD&D Dungeon Master's Guide, he had appendices. And the end the appendix was further reading or inspiration. Uh, I forget what it was titled. But it was a list of the books that he had read, Gary Gygax had read, that you can almost, if you read those books, you can say, oh, this came from that, this came from that. So... As an example, it's kind of like grocery shopping. It was going like down the aisle and want, picking yeah, stuff out of the aisle. I, yeah. I like this from this. So I, I can tell you that the entire magic system used in Dungeons and Dragons up to today in 5th edition came from Jack Vance's The Dying Earth series of books, where a mage would just be a regular person, they get in a battle with something, and they leave the battle and they feel stronger, and all of a sudden they know a spell. They didn't learn it, it just came. And when they use it, it's gone. And then they have to rest and then they regain it. That is called the Vancian Magic System and that came from that series of books. Uh, the unique monsters that you see, um, they came from the works of like Robert E. Howard. So in the Conan books, if Conan entered a deserted temple, no one had been there for 2000 years and he fights a monster, that's the only monster in the world like that. And no one will ever fight it again. And that's one huge difference between OSR games and modern games. Because in modern games, you fight an orc. And in OSR games, you fight the orc. Like, he's important. He is to be feared. Yeah. And that's a big difference. So I think in modern systems, like, most people are like, oh, I come from the coast and it's in this barony and... You know, it's part of this continent and the greater world. And in most OSR games, the world is small. I can recommend Robert Howard. I love Conan. And I love his... Uh, and you're right. The monsters in Conan are not... You know, you, there are like sort of beastmen or subhumans that Conan fights all the time. But when he fights like a monster monster... It's unique. Yeah, it's exactly, very unique. And, exactly. it, and it's meant to be that. And I think that uh, the one thing that OSR games do very well is they create a sense of fear in the players that I could go at any time. And I think that that fear has been removed from modern gaming to some extent because anybody that plays 5th Ed knows how hard it is to actually kill a character. Thank you. Like you People get, tell me all the time, it's not hard to die in 5th edition. And I tell it's them, exceedingly it is difficult it's to hard it's die. It's exceedingly easy to die in OSR games compared. So everything's relative, right? But... In an OSR game, you start out... So if we were playing a funnel, you're a zero level. You have one to four hit points, whatever that D4 gives you. That's what you got. And if you go under, you're dead. Uh, and in, Zero is dead. Zero, zero is, dead. is not, I'm bleeding out. Zero right. is not, zero I'm is conscious. Dead. At zero, zero is level, dead. zero is dead. So there is a mechanic where at first level, if you're zero, you're dead. But you can do something called recover the body. And there's rules around that. So they look dead. They appear dead. But if, uh, say, this happens to me and you say, I'm going to recover, I'm going to do the recover the body uh, maneuver on Brian's character and uh, the DM roll, oh, he, he just looked like he was dead. There's he wasn't actually dead. Right, yeah. Like, oh, and yeah. then I'm back, right? So there's things like that that can be done. And if there's a die roll included, you can spend luck to, you know. So, you know, everything is more... Um, like there's a lot more stress with every role in an OSR game because the stakes are higher. I think uh, character death is all the time. Like I, I talk to other judges that that do CCC, 
And it's uncommon to see campaigns where you're talking with fifth, sixth level characters because they're either so powerful they've got, you know, carved out their own barony in the place or they're so gimped up if they're a cleric or a, a wizard from corruptions and disapprovals that they're just not doing much of anything. Uh, but the, it's still a satisfying game thing. Um, so anyway, that's that's Appendix N was the inspiration for all of the, these games brought so, to the world. So if, if, if that's sort of our definition of what an old school game is, and what is it then? Is it the lethality that drew you to it? So, or is it the nostalgia of this reminds me of when I first started playing Dungeons & Dragons, so I like it because. So I think that's a good question, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to respond, and I'm going to segue into uh, GNS theory. Okay. Because I think that's very relevant to how I answer this. But there is a nostalgia factor. So when I started playing this, uh, it gave me the feeling that I had when I was 13 years old, playing for the first time. And just being scared, like, are you going to open the door? And it's like, I don't know if I really want to open the door. And after people play um, any other role-playing game, so an orc is an orc is an orc. So if you're first level, you're afraid of them. Second level, not so much. Third level, you're kind hunting of like, them. Yeah, you're hunting them. And fourth level, like, oh, it's orcs. You know, I just slap them under the way. He dies from my back fist. Um, and you never feel like that because everything's unique. Like this guy on the cover of Sailors of the Starless Sea uh, you will never see anything like that outside of this adventure. It's unique to the adventure. And, and pretty much everything in every DCC adventure is unique to the adventure. But I, And interestingly enough, I remember in uh, my old basic and advanced Dungeons & Dragons, it was not uncommon to have a unique monster in the module. In the module, right. And you would not, you know, of course you could take it and transplant it into other adventures, you could do that with that as well. You you could do it, and I think it's kind of funny if you if you look back at some of these old adventures, you know, uh, as a retrospective study. But you can see that they kind of follow the video game formula where you have mooks, you have a mini boss, yeah. you have stronger mooks, and then you have the big boss. I and a lot of modules that were done before when video games were hockey and tennis and pong. Yeah. Followed that formula. Oh, absolutely. Because it's something that works well thematically and it worked in fiction. Modern fantasy MMOs pulls directly from uh, Dungeons and Dragons uh, core four classes fighter, mage, rogue, wizard. Yeah, Yeah. sorry, fire, mage, rogue, cleric. Yeah. That is the core of just about every popular MMO out there. You need a tanky person, you need a healy person, you need a magic person that can crowd control. And you need somebody that can be sneaky. Yep, yeah, that's exactly. It. And any anything beyond that is just a, a minor riff. And uh, some people, you know, they're drawn to a system because of you know, oh, I really like this class, or I really like this race. But it's kind of funny because I know people that play Guild Wars and they have some weird races, right? And they'll I'll say, what race are you? And they'll start describing it, and I'm like, you don't know the name. Because it's so weird, it doesn't fit that trope. Like, we have these archetypes in our head. And I think that's why this game works really well. Because people can get their head around. Like, if you've never played a game before, but you've watched, say, Lord of the Rings, which is a really good example because a lot of people that aren't into fantasy have seen it. And I said, you're going to play a dwarf. They would have a pretty good idea of what an Appendix N dwarf would be like. 
or an elf. They would have a pretty good, like, I probably got a bow. I'm probably tall, and I'm very reserved, and I, I have this regal air about me. I can wield some magic. Absolutely right? and, true. And, yeah. and, and you don't get that from D&D, because you can be gnome barbarians in fifth ed. Um, but there, there is something this um, academic had worked on this theory. He calls it GNS, and it's short for uh, Game Narrative Simulation. And players are generally attracted to one of those three domains. So I think that people that are really drawn to fifth ed are narrative people. They don't necessarily want the stakes to be life or death. They want to be a character in a fictional story where they're, they can pretend that they're the hero. And the problem with that, if the stakes are so low that death becomes something that is remotely possible, then it just becomes... Uh, a soap opera in a fantasy environment with low stakes uh, because you're you're in it for the story and and there's nothing wrong with that right because I'm, I'm not making a judgment on this but there's people that want that narrative experience oh no we absolutely play with a really mixed group of people yeah. even currently and everybody at the table is definitely looking for something different right we have an individual who wants the story to draw us who wants to see what the next twist is who wants to connect a to b we play at a table with a guy who just wants the big twist. I want to roll that yeah. dice, and I want to just... So, I want the table to go... Oh, yeah. So like, I can't believe that that number was that high. Right? right, yeah. He's a gamer. Right. So he's he's trying to have a fun and engaging game experience. Yes. And he doesn't necessarily want a great story as long as you know he's participating in a fun game experience. Right. And then the other... Uh, piece of the triangle would be a, a simulation. There's some people that, and, and we've all experienced these people like, well, that's not realistic. That's not how it would work. They want the game to be a simulation that follows very easily understood rules in the fantasy environment. So the magic system has to have rules that make logical sense. The, the world has to be built in a way that makes logical sense. Like, why is this here? Why is that there? And if it's not, they don't, they don't get it. And I think this is one of the challenges of being a good D DM if you know, you're playing D&D or a judge or a GM, if you're playing other systems. But you have to be able to provide a game experience that will hit each of those three so that everybody at your table is getting something out of it. Because if you have that gamer guy and everybody is uh, role-playing the, the ball, uh, you know, and they're doing... Uh, information gathering at the, the royal ball. That person's going to be wanting to stab their eyes out with boredom, right? Yes. Where if it's just kick the door down, kill the monster, count the treasure, the people that are after the narrative experience are going to have a less than ideal experience. So I think that where this fits in with the OSR is when the game first came out, it was a fun game. It came from war gaming. These were war gamers. And they said... Okay, instead of this one guy being 10 soldiers, what if it's just one guy and I control just one guy and I go through this whole thing and uh, they, they were playing a game and this is a game and you don't get as attached to your character. Like you don't do backstories for this game. But the modern, what I will call the modern Dungeons and Dragons player, the, the modern 5th edition player, kind of doesn't see anything in that that's fun for them because they want the soap opera. 
a character death is like a huge event at the table. Yeah, it's very traumatic. Uh, yeah, I get that, but I I think it's an I look at it more like pizza and burgers. My pizza might be my ongoing game. That's the character that I'm developing. I'm in a huge part of it. But at some point in time, if I'm going to do a one-off, one-off fifth edition level nine, dude, there's, there's, it's not worth trying to even figure out my character class for that four-hour block. No, I agree. In terms of a one-off for a four-hour night with six guys around the table and some beer, I'm really liking the sound of this engine call classic. Yeah. And I'm I'm totally sucking up because I really want to play this. Yeah. So <laughs> the, the interesting thing about this game, and uh, I had Bill play in, uh, in a group with me, uh, and he ran through this. And this was the first adventure that I ran him through. So he had four characters. And two of them ended up being dwarves. He made one male, one female, and they were brother and sister. And oh. he had four other characters. So... Uh, we were, and there were some other people around the table and they had their characters, but he said, what do I do about backstory? And I'm like, your funnel is supposed to be your backstory. Um, and I, I really like this on the back of the, the book, but it's, it says, you are no hero. You're no adventurer. <laughs> you know, you're, you're a gong farmer. You're, you're a farmer. You're a surf. You're a candle maker and you are pulled into an adventure. So through the adventure, the brother died a horrible death. And the sister made it through, became level one. And that, and he's like, that's, that's my backstory. Back and yeah. the interesting thing was, it's not like you just sit like, I'm going to make this character. And then you write out this paragraph that's just straight fiction, right? Yeah. Like his backstory was meaningful to him. He lived it. He yeah. actually played through the backstory. And some and people then, love the backstory. We, we, I played with, we have one guy in our group. His backstory is a, is a novelette. Like it's fleshed out. There's dates, there's times, there's places, right? Yeah, and, and you know, and he's a narrative awesome. person. Yeah. And uh, I think that these these types of games appeal more to the gamer person. Mm -hmm. And now, you can have narrative, like, because I string these things together, and I put a couple of adventures, because there's hooks here that right. are unresolved, and I put hooks in that connect this to other adventures, and I just keep going, keep going. Right? I def we definitely play with a couple of guys I can see would just have a blast with this. Would, yeah. Like, didn't? Yeah. Would absolutely... I don't know if he would. I think you'd be surprised yeah. how much he likes to have his backstory. Because, uh, well, this is the other thing. There's a lot of combat. There's I know, I know, but the randomness, so okay. the randomness of character creation... This is a hard thing. You can't sit down at the table with a pre-made idea of what you want to build because the dice could roll and... Yep, you have it's, no idea. Yeah, it's like stand-up comedy. Like, you're on the spot. Right? Yeah. You're... Yeah. And, and then it, it also takes you out of the box. And I think that people are continually surprised because they, uh, you know, when you roll 3d6 down the line, you yep. end up with garbage, right? And you predict, okay, this guy's going to be cannon fodder because I want this one to survive. Because if this one becomes first level, I could actually do something with it. And then so in terms of marching order, I'm going to put the fodder right. in the front. Right, and they do. Like, yeah. I can see people, you know, on their sheet, like, okay, uh, expendable, expendable, expendable. I'd really like this one to live. He's going to bring up the rear guard. And then this one ends up living, and for no good reason, becomes a level one, and then you're like, oh, okay, I guess, well, what are my stats? Like five intelligence. Yeah. So what would you say, then, is the strength of the old school system... Its ability to fit the G gamer that wants the grittiness and the sort of the 
death around every corner. Is that the strength of the system? Like, I think it's one of the strengths. If you're looking, if you are a, a gamer on the GNS scale, uh, an old school game is going to provide you a, a, a more predictable, satisfactory experience. Mm-hmm. Because you are going to be doing constant combat, and the decisions that you make through the game are meaningful. Yes. Uh, and you know you can still have a good story, but the story isn't driving the experience. It's mm-hmm. the game itself. Uh, you know. And this is kind of this is kind of we talked about this earlier. I feel like new school games cater to uh, the character and the story. And older school games, you're catering to the adventure, the dungeon, the the getting there. Like, today's games focus on the individual as a person and what makes, what are they all about. I think people are projecting themselves and, and maybe even exploring different parts of themselves through their character. So when, when I think of... But the old school game is like... These are just my stats, yep. and I'm here to kill shit and chew bubblegum. Yeah. I think it's possible take, take the to, to be both, though. I mean, it's possible to go, tonight, I really can't wait to build this character that I've been working on forever. But other nights, instead of instead of setting up a minigame, why don't we just crack open this? But don't you think there's a the door and... Don't you think <laughs> there's a danger in that, in that if you become attached to that character... Oh, dude, you know how attached I am to characters. But they're they're dead like that. Yeah. That's it, yeah. I've described it to my characters, and I've compared it to Doctor Who. So if you watch Doctor Who, uh, the episodes don't really matter, and it doesn't really matter um, who he meets or whatever. If you're a long-term viewer, the at its essence, the, the Doctor Who series is, it reveals a little bit of insight about Doctor Who. So it's like a puzzle, yep. right? Uh, so every season, there's a story arc, and he does things, but... It doesn't really matter in the big picture long term. It, it's every episode. Just look. I look at every episode. Is it's a little bit of the mystery of the Doctor is revealed a mm-hmm. little bit in every episode, right? Yeah. So I told my characters to stop looking at the game as being about their party and look at the game as being about the world revealed. So it doesn't matter what character they're playing. They're finding out a little bit more about the world. I think that's, the, that's the, a great way to The world is the focus because it doesn't matter what characters you're playing or. That's going to be tough know. to get your head around, though, because it, I mean, really, right now, shift. everything, you're correct, everything is incredibly character driven right now. Yeah. Like, you put a ton of effort into but developing it, a character. So, here, so, you have the experience. So, let me ask you this Can it be crippling? In other words, can a party be crippled by the idea that if I pick up that rock, I die? So that when they walk into the dungeon that we've got out here, the, the what's it called? The sailors on the starless, uh, starless sea, yeah. that they are presented with a door or a bridge or something. And nobody touches it. And nobody will cross it. That they, happens? They will not advance the adventure because at this point they're like, Oh, I see what you're saying. Oh, I happens. cannot go around the next corner because someone else is going to die. That happens, and uh, that doesn't matter. Because if it stays there, there's an opportunity for other people to go. And it might not be them. But if it exists in my world... But have you had the party just bail out? Yes, I have. And, oh, then, yeah? and then Yeah, and then they go on to the next thing. Do they, they go just, on, though? Yes. Like, my thing... My... I get, I'm just my imagination here because I'm spoiled with fifth edition, and so and there and I'm currently running an incredibly story-driven 
game at the bench uh, where I DM that my characters are incredibly attached to their characters. To some extent, I'm attached to their characters because we've been playing now for a long time. We've world-built together. We've story-crafted together. There have been deaths in the campaign. Like, of the table of six, only two of them are playing their original characters. Everybody else has had to reroll at some point. But I don't think it would ever be so crippling <laughs> to go, Yeah. I can't turn the next corner. Like, I have to get out of this dungeon. And then what brings them... So if that happens, if they go, this dungeon, we're just going to die in. So then they go on to explore the next dungeon. But sooner or later, they reach that boiling point yeah. again where they're like, we're all dying again. Right. So it's like uh, there's a meta effect where you train your players to be good, better gamers. Because if somebody rolls uh, a character and they make a mistake and that character dies the player retains that knowledge and they can use it on the new character. So over time, so the, the way a lot of the OSR, uh, especially the older guys like Menster and Tim Cass, refer to it as Gygaxian. So there's Gygaxian puzzles, there's Gygaxian ways of doing things. And I guess he was a very sadistic DM. He, would, he was literally like, what are That's you gonna, my understanding of what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And um, very much the... the the DM in the Knights at the Dinner Table comic strip was modeled after the Gary Gagax. And he had trained his players over time, though, to do all of those things because they had lost so many characters previously. So once you get used to this old school way of gaming, mm -hmm. and a lot of it is, uh, I think it adds because it doesn't have rules. So I, I hate skill checks. I think that 3.0, when they came up with skill checks, it hurt role playing. It hurt the narrative because here's what I, even on Critical Role, and I'm a huge Critical Role fan. But are you? Yes, I am. Because I, am. I would think Critical Role is the antithesis of OSR. <laughs> yes, it is. But I can appreciate both types of games. Yeah, Fair enough. Because because I, yeah, I I do play a little bit of Fifth Ed, and I'm going to be starting a Pathfinder campaign soon. Um, now I prefer to to GM this, but I'll play other games. But uh, you know, the critical role, and it's been called the critical role effect, where a lot of people have come into the game only after they've never played, but they've yep. watched a lot of critical role. I, ha and I have they, a player at my table at yeah, the bench. And then, she watched critical role and was like, I need to learn more about this game. I want to go play somewhere. Right. And now I have her at my table for the last two years. And, and that's where they come in. So that's their expectation. That That's not mine. I totally forget what point I was trying to make. What were we talking about? <laughs> we were talking about... The critical role effect of essentially, I think we were going along the path that, you know, characters don't die, the story drives the purpose. Maybe not? I think it was after that, but before the critical role. <laughs> well, we're talking about the crippling effect of, like, turning around dungeons, corners oh. and everything, and then, of course, Gygax being sadistic and... and then people have been watching Critical Role and this is what they expect. That's what they expect. So, uh, yes, okay. So if you've uh, come into it, you've been watching a lot of Critical Role, you spend, an, you know, weeks thinking about your character, and then you finally sit down in front of, you know, Word, and you type out your character's backstory. You're so invested in this character, and then if it was an OSR game, you walk into a dungeon and you die right away, yeah. right? So, um, in this way of gaming, you, you don't get invested in your characters until they're, like, first, second level, because they're going to die. Um, 
And it, it's just a different approach. But it's, it's not like when they get the first or second level, they're not going to die. Yeah, but, you know, <laughs> you don't get attached to them as much. Fair I mean, uh, that's why they do the funnel. I mean, the purpose of the funnel is to train you in how to play an OSR game like this. And because uh, Here's my comment on the, on the Critical Role thing. Critical Role, if you really want, it comes from a place of acting and improvisation as opposed to gaming. So improvisation has a rule, a rule where like someone can put something out there into the world and you build on that. Right, so, so it's yes and. Yes and, yes yeah. and. So your character dies, yes and. Mm -hmm. Whereas old school games, your character dies, you're dead. Right. It's, it's over. Yeah. Whereas in a Matthew Mercer game, Critical Role, you have the character suddenly meet your character died. Yes, and you meet the goddess of death. And she sends you back with the purpose right. to do this. Not today. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But it comes from that idea of that you're build you're doing a story and you're just building off of what your improvisational partners are giving you. Right. I think your people you know, players need to know that they can always make another character. And that second character will be just as fun to play as the first character. And it's, it's not about them. Like, I, I have tried to tell my players that the story, the focus of the story is not the party. It's the world. It doesn't matter what players are in the party at that time. If you die, another player will come in and you will learn more about the world. And that collective knowledge is retained. Oh, oh that's what we were talking about. It was how, it, in, in, because Gygax's games were so deadly yeah. Uh, his players got very good at avoiding all his little tricks. The 10-foot pole scenario. The 10-foot pole. Oh, that's where I was getting into the narrative. All of the skill checks, so this happens in Critical Role, is uh, okay. he'll say, yes, yeah. he'll say, I want to look for a trap. Okay, roll. Okay, I get this. Well, so you're feeling around the, the box, and then you notice that there's a little something, you see a pin sticking out, and you look, and it's got a dot of fluid on it, you think, oh, it's probably poison, but because you rolled so well, you avoid that. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's not the OSR way of doing it. No. The OSR way of doing it is, I'm going to check for traps. And and thieves were not in original D&D. They actually came in the Greyhawk or Blackmore supplement. So the first one was just the, the basic classes without thieves. But it would be, I'm going to look for traps. Oh, okay. How are you looking for traps? No. And there would be this conversation. You would spend before... your whole time poking everything with your dagger. You never used your fingers. Yeah, in your you hand. never used your fingers, <laughs> and uh, that's where the narrative stuff comes out. It comes out through the role play. You know, like okay, how are you uh, looking for traps? Okay, I I kind of uh, I I do a perimeter check visually. Okay, you don't really see anything. Okay. Uh, I take the the flat of my blade and I just lift it up on one corner. Well, what corner are you lifting up? Uh, the front left. You know, and, and you have the thief actually go into the minutia of how they're doing it. And then say there was a trap, right? And you think, okay, the things that he is doing, he could find it. Then you have a mole. But if he isn't doing the things mm -hmm. that would give him a chance to actually detect the trap that's there... You don't let him roll because he's not doing the right things. Just like in the old days, we had that 10-foot pole and we were poking the floor every time. Uh, yeah. Because you knew You literally should have hired a henchman to yeah. carry a 10-foot pole. You, you, I got one in memory. We, in first edition, I remember campaign, we had a wizard with a toad named Thwap. 
which he would cast stone skin on and throw him down hallways, hoping that thwap would trigger the traps. Yeah, um, because you had to do that. And now, now the people I think do that we now. We had a round rock the size of a bowling ball. We would sometimes roll down a hallway before we would go down. Yeah, the, you'd cast the continual the light on. <laughs> so we had a discussion about uh, social skills specifically, but it applies to all skills. I I think there's DMs out there that even though the skill checks are there, they're not playing with them from a standpoint of they know in advance I want the players to find that trap. So the player rolls. He rolls crap. The trap still somehow gets found. I've witnessed it in games that I've played in. I've rolled horrible. I have a really good... I like to think at least I have a very good grasp of the 5th edition rule set. I play it weekly, sometimes multiple times in a week. And I am not one of these people that are wishy-washy about the rules. I'm not going to say go as far as saying I'm a, I'm a rules lawyer. But I read my rules. And they should... Like, there are certain rules. A roll below a 10 really shouldn't do anything for you. So when I roll and I go to my DM, I got an 8. I'm expecting to get nothing back. When the DM still gives me stuff, I start metagaming in my mind... I'm horrible to other DMs. I don't say anything to them, but I'm still working it over in my mind. They gave me that information. And if it's not misleading, I love misleading information, but if it's not misleading, I realize they shouldn't have even asked me to roll because they wanted to give me that information anyway. Right. So I was, the rolling, the dice rolling is an interesting thing that you bring up too. And uh, I'm glad you did because I hadn't thought of this as something we should talk about. In OSR gaming, all rolls are generally in public. You don't so play with a screen. I play with a screen, but it's just to hold my notes. All my rolls are done. And this is because when DMs roll behind screens, they do have a tendency to fluff for the story. We've actually had a massive discussion yeah. about exactly on and off. I and think, if that's the, the case, why roll at all? I believe Thank that's you. the exact statement he made. Yeah, yeah. I, I my ar- my argument that. is that DMs just ask for rolls, and I get people like to roll their dice. But DMs right now are asking for rolls when they don't need a roll. Passive perception in 5th edition was built so that you don't have to roll. Because perception is the most overused piece of garbage skill mm-hmm. out there. Right. And that kind pa- of is a holdover from earlier editions where you had <clears throat> like spot checks and stuff. Passive edition. In the game. Here's what percep- the perception check is created because players lost trust in their DMs. And they felt, this is my opinion at least. They think, DM Jeremy is fucking me over. I should have known those goblins were there. But because there's no rules for knowing, it's just, is Jeremy going to tell me the goblins are or not? It's the same as with the trap example. I told the, I told uh, my judge that I looked around that box, and he still didn't let me see the needle with the poison on it. Because the, DM, that, the judge was looking for something else. But So now they're like, so I want a rule. And we're going to do a skill check. And if I roll well on that skill, skill check, you're not going to be able to hold that information back from me. I really think that's where skill checks came from. Yeah. It's because... Do you think maybe it came along, too, just to speed the game up? Because, I mean, the, the, the amount of time it takes to roll a skill check as opposed to role-playing or describing it as, you know, <clears throat> simply motivate... It moves th- your game along I think faster. it came. I think it came from player and DM conflict... So a skill check is no longer a bias. It's strictly you didn't make the roll, dude. You I saw the die. I you didn't see it. Yeah. 
or I made the rule. The other thing that I think that uh, that skill checks uh, brought about was, oh geez, I just went mind blank here. Give me a second. No, that's okay. We'll edit all this no. out. The other thing that I think skill checks came about was there was the rule so that there was no arguments and there was oh in character player versus character sheet knowledge. The argument of there's I'm no always this, there's no way this is a dead end. No, there has to be a secret no, door. My wizard has 18 intelligence. Right. I'm not that kind of IQ. You're asking me to figure out puzzles. My wizard should be able to figure out these puzzles. He's right. more smart than me. We've talked about this. You know how I feel. Well, well yeah, yeah. We're going in circles here. We've, yeah. d- we've done these discussions before. But <clears throat> but I think that's where all those skill checks came from. And But I think I, I think that, that trust in the DM, there was too many DMs. <laughs> I think it's too bad to players. Players. I really think it and takes then, away from the role playing. I, I do too. Takes, I, I, do, mean, I do too because it circumvents it. You get situations where like a check for traps. Okay, roll. Oh, I find it. If or it's no, there, I find or it. roll a six. Yeah. But you don't see anything. Well, I'm not about to open that door. But it also Because does, I know that if it was there, I didn't see it. It also does this. It also does this to the dungeon. Sure. It's a 20 by 20 foot room. Yeah, but what does it look like? It's a 20 by 20 foot room. What do you want? Make a perception check. Like... Do you see what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. Whereas, if I was like, well, there's a trap in the roof in early editions, I would be like, well, how would that look but different? I think right. like, what, back to the what I always try to go over what they see, what they smell, what they hear. Exactly. How can I describe this room? It's, it's a vaulted ceiling. Because there appears to be some sort of wooden apparatus partially wedged in the corner. Yeah. Yeah. There's a rotted tapestry on the wall. Then all of a sudden, it starts to role playing. But when I check the tapestry, I'm going to sit here with my bow drawn. I am a little suspicious about that wood yeah. trapped up on the ceiling. Yeah. And instead of just rolling and going, okay, ABC yeah. just happened. Yeah. And I think there's probably, I like the there is probably a blend out there. A blend of, I'm going to give the description. You need to go looking. I will give you the roll, but I'm not just throwing the roll out for Absolutely. you. You have to essentially uh, uh, work for the ability to get to that place where I go, okay, now I need a roll. I love the roll. Don't get me wrong. There's nothing better than sitting at a table with a bunch of friends and somebody has to make an important role, and the role's super good or super bad because yeah. that table erupts. Everybody starts laughing. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But yeah. you, but at the same time, the role has become so dependent on those skill checks <laughs> that it's, it's removed all the other things. That's right. Yeah. I have players immediately yeah. ask for the role, and then when I judge without a role, because I love, I, I like to think I understand the path of perception role. I'll bet you the majority of fifth edition DMs do not have. A perfect grasp on the so I'm tooting my own horn here I realize but I use passive perception a lot I use it to see if things are sneaking up on people I use it to see if they notice you do you notice them and I don't ask for those roles and I have players going like well can I make can I make a can I make a perception check to see if I see them coming up no I don't need your perception check I know your passive perception you didn't see them coming right, right. I don't need to tell you that uh, there was something suspicious on the floor there. You didn't make your passive perception. So I'm trying to remove those rules. And when you do that, you can see the player going like, but I want to make a perception check. I'm like, because nothing infuriates me more than a character who rolls and goes, oh, I only got an eight. But my passive perception is 12. So do I get a 12 on that roll? It's like, no. If you could have seen it with your passive perception, then I shouldn't have asked you for a roll in the first place. That's where the... And so... Obviously, I'm just going out of my mind here on a rule that drives me crazy. <laughs> but 
that idea of the skills coming in and changing how the game was played yeah is valid i i had a very long conversation with somebody just this weekend at game hall and he he hates monty cook for bringing in skills to that <laughs> because he said that's when he stopped playing that D&D. is and proficiencies had kind of come around in second edition they, yeah, they but you're right second. monty cook uh, in third edition, third did the whole skill, and it, and it was silly because OSR um, used to cover it this way. So uh, describe something like what's something that would have a skill: horseback riding, right? Mm-hmm. Agility would cover it, like your dex in yeah. in like Labyrinthoid or something. Yeah. So uh, passive perception would be tied to your intelligence, like detecting the passive chance to find a secret door in DCC is tied to your intelligence. Like you have attributes, and the funny, the weird thing is, we were is asking like, for roles on those long before the. Oh yeah, yeah, we on. did right from the beginning. Um, like I want to lift this rock. Well, it's right around what you need to lift it, so I'd like you to give me a twenty sided and tell me if you get under your strength. So I have a fifteen strength. I need fifteen yeah. or less, and then I would go. You pick up the rock. You pick up the rock. Yeah, that's how that in Labyrinth Lord today. That's the rule in it, and they just codified something that everybody had been doing. But if you have like something that's like reasonably difficult is like a DC 15, right? In most systems, right? Mm-hmm. So if you have an 18 in your attribute, you get a plus three to any skill check. So a DC with a... That's in Dungeon Crawl Classic, a plus three? Uh, yeah, for an 18 strength. Is right? it? I believe the the bonus to hit and damage. So, it's, so DCC is not like old school where it's like if you're above 13, you get a plus one, and if you're below eight, you get a minus one. That's all there is. Uh, no basic... Like BX had plus one, plus two, plus three. What am I thinking of? Labyrinth Lord does it that way too. Does it? Uh, yeah. Uh, so I think it's. I think Sword and Wizardry does it 13 and up as a plus one and eight and down. And uh, yeah, Swords and Wizardry is based on the original. Maybe that's what D&D I'm pulling from. Yeah. yeah, it's it's based. So Swords and Wizardry, Black Hack, and White Box are all based on the original game, the, mm. the three little booklets. Mm-hmm. And then there's one called Blue Holm. We hadn't talked about that yet. That's based no, that's on right. the Holmes Blue Book Edition Basic. And then Labyrinth Lord is based on BX. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a bunch, actually. It's hugely popular. Um, there's a guy, Jason Hobbs, who has a podcast called Hobbs and Friends. And he's been doing a long-running Kalmata, uh, like a West Marches game, using the BX rules. And he runs it at cons. He was running it at Game Hall. He runs it at Gary Con every year. And he has awesome. a... A Twitch channel where he does it using Fantasy Grounds online. You just you know That's sit good. in on the game, um, but those those mechanics were always in. But when you have a skill check check uh, mechanic, I think it makes players think, oh, I'm just gonna roll. Oh, I succeed and. That's it, right? They don't have to do any description, and it makes for lazy players and lazy I, I GMs too. I want the table interaction. Too. Yeah. I want player interaction. I push for it. Right, and I want to know more about the room than it's twenty by twenty. I want to know what it smells like. Yeah, What's yeah. in it? What do I see? Yeah. Where's the? Where could somebody be hiding? Yeah. Where could you know? And there's a term that that we use sometimes, like once you decide, okay, there's no danger. All right, well, let's disassemble the room and find any treasure that's there. It's called greyhawking. Like, we right. greyhawk the room. Okay. You basically flip the bed over, you cut into the mattress, you tear it apart, you take the mirrors off the wall, you take it out, you look for papers because someone could hide a scroll behind the glass. You know, you greyhawk the room. And that came from old school gaming because. But it, does that ever become old? Like, as an old school gamer, does the idea of just, oh, the, there is a formula. For breaking down a room, and you run it. Well, it's like the formula for opening a door. Uh, you know. Um, I check for traps. I listen. Yeah, 
Uh, I think it's the, the novelness of the encounters that keeps it fresh. So I'll list our gaming because it is firmly based in appendix and literature. The things that you find in that adventure are unique and you'll never find it. And you, you have no idea. When this jumps out at you, you have no idea what the stats are. You have no you idea. You don't know that it can cast a spell, fly across exactly. the room, mind control, spit acid. Right. It's like, what the hell is that? Yeah. And why is it coming straight at us? Let's throw that elven glass for up front. His stats are horrible. Right. And in uh, DCC, and I think this might be unique to the OSR games, but uh, you are supposed to introduce players to extraplanar encounters right away. Because if you read these novels, like you're a farmer in a field and there's a portal and you go through it and boom, you're in this other world, right? If you've ever mm -hmm. read Glory Road by Robert Heinlein, it was his only fantasy novel. He, he wrote pure SF his entire career, but he wrote one and it was a, basically a guy answered an ad in a paper uh, for a strong warrior to get a kingdom back, which was a formula Terry Brooks took for the sort of Shannara, yep. right? It was a lawyer who was dissatisfied with his life. Um, no, that was Magic Kingdom for Sale Sold. Sold, yeah, pure but, uh, No, that was pure Terry Brooks as okay. well. Uh, but he, uh, but yeah. he was a lawyer, yes. and he wrote these books because he wanted an escape from his life. But anyway, uh, in this book, uh, the hero goes through, and it was like he was a, a vet just back from the Korean War. I think that was the story. And uh, in Appendix N, you're told to introduce players to extraplanar things, dimensional travel, um, and deities right away. Like right. they want people to patron bond right away. I played in a an adventure. Uh, Brendan LaSalle was judging it and uh, we were on our way to the adventure and he was running palace of the silver princess which was an old basic D &D using the dcc rules and we're oh, okay. on our way to the castle after the calamity struck and one of the deities from the book came and wanted to bargain because there was something in there they wanted and if we got it for them we would get you know in their favor but they were going to give us something yeah. You know, quote, you know it's, quote, quote. it's interesting. So those things that you're describing are like pulp sword and sorcery stories where gods meddle in the lives of men. Monsters are unique. Uh, locations are unique. Uh, you know, I, I, I think that's interesting. It's, that, it's like there's no such thing as just a plus one long sword. Right. Like it's it's, 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 it's not a plus one no, long sword. It's, it's the sword of, of you know whatever. Yeah. yeah, and they don't have uh, tables in the back with like lists of things. It, it more has a framework for creating. So there are rules in here. If you look, there's uh, so and it tells you how to do these things. Just, but they want everything to be unique and special. Just to be devil's advocate for a moment. So all of those things I think can be recreated though using a modern system. So, which still brings me back to, like, I have, um, I have a fifth edition setting made by Sasquatch Games called uh, Primeval Thule. It is pulp, sword, and wizardry. Does everything that you're talking about. Dimensional beings uh, introduce the uh, uniqueness, uh, role play the world as opposed to the character. It still uses the fifth edition engine. Um, so I guess what, so I'm still, I don't know, I'm still trying to figure out, 
I know there's lots of people that play the old school games, but I'm still not sure that other than nostalgia, a simplicity of the system that does it better, because I'm not sure that all those older systems are as simple as some of our, like the 5th edition, again, I'm just using 5th edition because it's widely popular. So that engine, everybody that plays it picks it up quickly. It's, it's clean, for it's, sure. It's one of the reasons it's done as well as it's done. Yeah, I, I think that um, maybe the mechanics of the game are simpler and character creation is more complex. Where in this, um, but even a lot of the, the tables... Uh, for crits and fumbles and everything are pushed off like it's all randomized as well so yeah. it, it, it's a dichotomy you, you, you crit or you don't crit I don't need to memorize this table I simply flip to the page I roll my I, die I mean, I, I, do, I, do, I do agree that yeah. I feel like the things we talked about like the focus of the the focus on the world mm-hmm. you know build the world uh, you're, it doesn't matter what character you're playing right. you can still explore this world so is your question could you play a game like this using 5th edition rules the answer is yes yes because at, the, at the I end already of the day, feel like yeah, yeah I feel like I know that what I'm trying to figure out is there is like if you had your choice hey we're going to play we're going to do a game night we're playing a role playing game we have a group of guys coming over one night though because that's the factor for me this is this would be high out of one game this is one ep- night okay DCC strikes me as being able to handle the episodic nature of one shots. Beautiful. But if I'm going to be more interestingly than fifth edition, I'm more interested in putting the time and effort into character development because it's an investment of time. It's it's something I'm going to be going back to. But can you like could a DCC or any you know we're we're focusing on DC because Brian knows it well. Could we do a one year campaign? Yes. Where I'm playing the same character, likely, for the full year, though? Like, if we had a... T- if we had how a happy do you feel? If we, <laughs> if we had, completely dependent on how well you roll and... Uh, if we had half a dozen people sitting at the table... If we had half a dozen players sitting at the table, after a year's gaming time, is it likely we're all playing... The same characters? No. 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 Is one of us maybe playing the same character? One of you might be, yes. and But that person would be one of the most powerful beings on the planet after one. After about a year? Yeah. yeah. Because when a DCC character it gets to be about five or six, yeah. uh, because they all have very unique. So, for example, halflings at first level can do a wield. Mm-hmm. They, they roll two 16-sided dice to hit with each. Uh, dwarves get two attacks. Uh, they Someone out there's mind just got blown when you said two 16-sided dice. Oh, yeah, because they use the Zochi set. Yeah. So it goes from a D3 to a D30. This, this sounds interesting. 14 dice. I've never seen these sets. Oh, I should have brought my dice. I went, well, hold on. I went down to Adepticon. Okay. And there was a table set up. It, it was not Goodman Games, but they were selling these crazy dice. Yeah. And I was like, boy, the, my kids love playing with my dice. I was like, I'm going to buy them each a set of their own, and these look amazing. So my oldest son is now playing D&D, and he comes to the table. He's got like a 30-sided dice. He's got like a 24-sided dice. And people are looking at him like, what are those for? What are those for? Yeah, <laughs> they're, they're used to like the, the seven normal yes, dice, yeah. right? Where, you know, you'd have to 
But even mm-hmm. with the seven normal dice, like I was called yeah. the twelve sided, the red headed stepchild of the dice family. <laughs> That's a shame because aesthetically, it's the nicest looking dice. I think it's yeah. gorgeous. But it's a, it's a real hunter, right? Yeah. Uh, so you know, but it's used in DCC a lot because that's the the two handed weapon. Well, it maybe um, sold me right there. Yeah. Uh, dwarves <laughs> at level one get two attacks. They get their primary weapon and a shield bash because you're a sword and board fighter if okay. you're a dwarf. If you are a wizard, you but can again, cast at will. So when you throw your magic missile out, unless you roll an 11 or under, you can just keep throwing it. And your, really? sp- your spell check roll is your d20 plus your level plus your intelligence bonus. So by the time you're fourth level, that's d20 plus four. So you get an 18 intelligence plus three. You're throwing nukes. Um, and it goes up to 30, I think. At 30, you throw... Yeah, but what s- happens when you fail? Okay, so you can... You, <laughs> usually, it's... Uh, <laughs> usually, it's just lost for the day. So you can't cast it again. Oh, okay. So you you take, have drained that resource. You, you, you're just... You, like, you goofed it up so bad, it's gone. Now, if you... If you fail really low, you have to roll to see if you get a minor corruption. And minor corruptions are minor, right? You get I actually, pustules. You get acne all over your body or I, something. That's like actually that. my favorite part of the system that I've read. Like when I read through my initial sort of just reading through, I love that idea of corruption. And actually when I brought that up to other role players who know nothing but 5th edition, they're like, oh my gosh, wouldn't that be great if like your wizard's... You know, on a one. Well, you are dabbling with things that people are not meant to, to dabble with. with. Yeah, Magic exactly. is very dangerous. And doesn't and that set a, I mean, I think that sets a great tone for any campaign. I, I realize that, like, sort of fifth edition Forgotten Realms, everybody can, like, Magic is just. A peasant could have a magic broom that sweeps up their yeah, house. Like, that's the one, the weird thing about. Uh, just having this massive. Array of cantrips at like level one. I don't know how anyone dies of a disease in the Forgotten Realms. Yeah, I there mean, are so many clerics. Yeah. Like, just go and get your disease. Fifth edition to me is like World of Warcraft, where you're a very high level person. You look around and you see the thousands of other high level yeah. people. Oh, it's high fantasy because magic is super common. Yeah. It's well understood. Where in these games, magic is scary. It's mm-hmm. super powerful. It's wielded by crazy people that have agreed to accept the cost of when things go bad. And uh, the way clerics work in this game is it, they're essentially spells as well. But, like mechanically, that's how they work. Mm-hmm. So it's at will. So your first level cleric, if he has lay on hands, he it's at will. Well, he does have lay on hands. It's at will. So he can just keep doing it. But if he rolls an 11 or under, he's threatening deity disapproval and if he rolls really low oh he shut off he can't even communicate with his deity he has to do an atonement and i had a cleric who rolled three disapprovals in a row in one game and that um atonement quest led into the next adventure so you just tie it in i'd like to see more of that in a current game i i love when there's sort of that um your deity's not happy with you, or in fifth edition, you're, you're a warlock. But it, your patron never shows up or asks anything of you ever. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. yeah. No, I don't it, think that ever happens. We don't have a warlock in our group for me to play around with that no, mechanic. But we did in the previous But game. I have had warlocks. Yeah, I would be like, have their patron be like, hey, here's a shopping list. 
And, I'll and, see you the next time there's a full moon in this blade. Let's, let's have this stuff done, okay? Yeah. And patrons in this work like Shuba of the Eyeless Face and then Gobble of the Seven Eyes yeah. from Lankmar. They are, you know, they're, they're constantly involved in your character's development. But they've got, they've got something yeah. over you. It's a quid pro quo. Uh, so I just got Lankmar over the weekend. It, it's just been released, so I'm interested to pop it open because I devoured the Swords Against series when That's I was a teen. Yeah. I just reread Swords Against Death recently, and I reread it every few years. It's such a there are so many people that have not read those books, and I, I was one of them for a very long time. And then I I like reading uh, Neil Gaiman, and Neil Gaiman is a big Fritz uh, Lieber fan. And I was listening to something in Neil Gaiman, and he recommended these. And, I'm, and I had heard of uh, Fafford and the Grave Mouser Grave before. Mousers, yeah. iconic. But I had never actually like gotten into them. And then I started, uh, I was had a lot of time on my hands as I drove back and forth from work, and I started listening to them on audiobook. And they changed the way I DM. Like, th- those stories and those ideas that come out of those stories are uh, of some... It, it, there's probably there's probably two authors that have really influenced my DMing. Fritz Lieber, uh, Fritz Lieber for sure is one. And the other is probably H.P. Lovecraft. I have a huge Love, Lovecraftian crush. Yeah. Uh, anything sort of uh, dimension, some sort of otherworldly terror, I just love putting in my mm-hmm. games. Uh, I mean, it's become it's gotten to a point now that like I, I've had players call me out on it. Like there's always Lovecraft in your game. I'm like, well. There's yeah. always Lovecraft in, in these <laughs> games, to too, too, because it's supposed to be scary. Like, if you think, like, you're a farmer, and you know nothing of the world beyond five miles, mm-hmm. say, mm-hmm. and this game, it, it, there's instructions in the back about world design, um, and making that dichotomy between modern games where you know the world. Like, you can get a big map of the world, and everybody knows the world, and where their character, and they've yeah. traveled here, and it's part of their backstory. And in this, like, you you all know the people that you started venturing with because you don't know anybody beyond your beyond little village, right? Yep. You're, you're mm-hmm. farmers. You're, mm-hmm. You don't know anything about the world beyond. It, it says make your world small. And to think that person is going to go and there's something in the cave down by the river and you're going to go there, that's... That should be terrifying to a person. Sure. No. And in most role-playing games, it's like, oh, here we come level two. And, and in this game, it's, I'm going to die. There's a good chance I'm going to die. It's almost folklore in that, like, everybody knows something lives in that cave by the river. Grandma told me about it. My mother told me about it. It's been passed down. Something lives in that na- yeah. their cave. But now there's a problem. And now we have to go to that cave. And we're going to have to confront that thing that everybody's talked about for years. And yeah, you're right. There's there's some kind of gut check before you can start that game. Right. right. And and the the fear should be in the players. Like whatever action that they take. And that's why I roll out in the open, because I want them to know that death well, is imminent and I'm not gonna do anything to cut that off. I, because if if I was gonna muff rolls, why roll at all? Just tell the story and and role play everything. You can role play combat, right? You could 
You can do that. And there are some systems like Amber back in the day had a diceless role-playing game. You worked everything out through other mechanics, but mostly role-playing. So if you're going to make up dice rolls, why roll them at all? So I roll out in the open. The dice fall where they lie. Ter- that's down. terrifying. That's terrifying. As a DM, I roll behind my screen regularly. I do, on occasion, fudge a roll. And it's not... It's not usually... It's usually because I haven't had the appropriate amount of prep time, and I have made an encounter either far too easy, or it's ridiculously hard. So I fall back on my screen to basically make it look like I'm an amazing DM that always hits the DC on its encounters just right. Oh yeah, no, I don't, I don't, I never, not in DCC. I and and me rolling out in the open is new for me because I used to, and I I only fudged when I'm like, okay, that's just not fair because. Everyone is playing well. It was yeah. just a bad rule. And that's what I'm talking about. And, and when I, I would, go like, I would fudge those, but I don't anymore because you know what? If if death isn't on the line, then they don't have anything invested. Well, no, I agree. And when they, and when they do succeed, they're like, we worked for this. Yeah. Like we earned this well, through they, luck and skill. If dumb luck strikes and the DM's rolling ones and twos, they're witnessing it. Right. Yeah. They they know. And so they Bill know. Bill and I talked a bit about this, and I and uh, sometimes uh, I think we described it as as luck hitting. So you reach a climax in the story where you, now someone at the table has to make a rule, and it's all or nothing on that rule. If that rule hits, the table goes crazy, goes crazy, and everybody thinks it's the best adventure that's ever occurred. Right. And if it misses, misses yeah. they're all like, oh, no, and then they accept their fate. Right. But there is real drama in that moment of watching if luck hits or not. And rolling the dice behind the screen, you don't get that same reaction on the table. So if the DM is also rolling his dice in the open, I can see how that's like where I've got one hit point left. If the dragon hits me, I'm done. And you, the DM rolls and rolls a one, and the table goes insane. Right. Because yeah. you've just, like, luck hit, and you are going to live now, because we've got this dragon beat if you can just survive this one more round. So there's some great stuff that can happen. But I think for every time that luck hits, there's probably about six or seven times that luck does not hit, and somebody yeah. eats. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I would actually challenge anybody that's, uh, especially for the GMs out there, uh, if you are running a 5th ed game and you haven't read any of the appendix and stuff, I, yes. would, I would suggest that you grab some old, you don't have to read the whole collected works or anything, but read like the Tower of the Elephant. Uh, don't Robert read Jack Howard. Vance. Don't read Jack Vance. I think Jack <laughs> Vance is a little too trippy. Uh, for anyone, but you're right. Read read some of Fritz Leiber's short stories. I would I would or Ron recommend, Howard. Uh, R- uh, not Ron Robert Howard. E. Robert, Howard. R- Robert yeah. E. Howard. Ron Howard. Yeah. <laughs> go, <laughs> go read, read Happy Days. Go, <laughs> go read Cocoon. Um, yeah. But uh, read some of that and then give one of the OSR games a spin. DCC, by the way, is a gorgeous book. It, it really is. It has and, a very specific art style. Art, well, it's BX, right? It's, right? it's, it's right. meant to evoke that era right of gaming. Look. Yeah. So we are hoping that Brian will come and do a, a run-through of our Old Man Rolling Dice crew. And we would love to play a game. 
and then sort of that would be really fun. We will, of course, we'll really we'll of course publish this, and everybody can listen to it. But I think it would be neat to then have a group of guys that I would say have played. Most of us have played at least a couple different systems of D and D through the year, a couple different editions. We have a couple guys that uh, you know are really sort of. If it's not five edition, I don't really play it. That's. And I think it would be interesting to give them. I would love to do the interview after, like to play a record it, and then sit down with everybody afterward and go, "Hey, so uh, how was that?" How did that work? Gonna, I, mean, I guarantee there's going to be some people who were like, "That was the most amazing promo session I've had in years," mm-hmm. and there's going to be other people who are like, "I died." Okay, I died, and I died again. All four of me and died. Yeah, and, and I don't know what you guys found so amazing about it. You're going to get both. I think it's. It's that kind of a game. And if we do, if and when we do, I would like to run this one because this is a very good funnel. Well, I have not read that. I we have you? No, I have not okay. read that. We have the book here, okay. so we will not read that, and we will. Yeah. And I, and again, I can't help but you know we are talking about Dungeon Crawl Classics. It is published by Goodman Games. I'll give Goodman Games a great shout out because we have okay. had to deal with them through our. A fundraiser and they have always been very More helpful than kind, kind donating so maybe we'll start to wrap up there we always ask our get we don't have a name for this podcast i don't know if you know that uh we are old men rolling okay. dice but the actual interview oh, we okay. don't have a name for so we always give it over to our guests uh do you have a uh so let's see what we have so a far. silly or serious so, so uh, far we have DMD. Bill suggested Dungeon Master Dialogues. DMD. DMD. And I think Colleen suggested The Cogs Are Turning. Something like that. The Something Cogs like are Turning. That. And, because there's the and I don't... And Devin had a good one too, and I don't recall what his is. So if, if, you, if you had the opportunity to name something our podcast... Ancient wisdom or something like that. Yeah, maybe. Do you have a it suggestion? we were old. Hmm. I'm going to give it an LSR flavor, but I would okay. call it uh, Grognard Grumblings. Oh, Grognard Grumblings. That actually. Because I that, love when you double, double the other yeah, too. Yeah, right? and I think that, that's, <laughs> the family uh, thing, right? that's something that's brandable, but I think that uh, for your format, I think that players enjoy play audio, but I think that uh, judges appreciate these more. Like judges are going to get more out of out of Absolutely. these discussions. Absolutely. So and Inter- I, interestingly enough, the our I'll, we'll release a little bit of a secret here. We have gotten far more listens than we ever thought we would get in our short time that we've been mm-hmm. doing this. That being said, our DM talks significantly dwarf our live plays. People are not as we we still. We still have people out there listening to our live plays, and I, and I thank everybody who's doing that, and I hope you're enjoying it. But our DM talks, well, then, we see significant numbers. And not just that, I think it's nice because you don't have to listen to a whole series of DM talks. You can just simply scroll through and go, actually, that's a topic yeah, that I'm came up for the week. I'm interested in the LSR. Yeah, well, how are I'm they interested doing in that? appendix and Right. Yeah. So you can kind of just nail in, listen to one thing, and kind of move on with yeah, your life. Right? Exactly. But, so Grognard's yeah. grumbling. That's that's what I'm like throwing that. out there. <laughs> and, and I know, like that one too, actually. Nobody's in their uh, thirties here. 
No, we don't have a player at the table in our in our thirties, do we? You said you had a girl in your in her twenties. Oh. oh, that's at my table at the bench. Uh, but our actual live old play man with oh, old okay. men rolling dice, we have Jeff. Jeff would be our youngest, our our paladin player, and I think Jeff is above. No, he might not be above forty. He might be late thirties. Ember's a year older than me. Yeah. Um, Basil is older than me. Yeah, it really is old men. Yeah, men rolling dice. So Grognar Grumbins is pretty, pretty I, good. I think that I think that fits. <laughs> I give that to you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do, do with it as you will. Do, do with it as you will. So it's hope, dangerous out there. Hopefully we'll have a follow up to this where you can listen to all us old men playing Dungeon Crawl Classic. This is easy. Like I mean this this is easy to record, it's easy to get to. If anybody else has got a topic, just let's shoot it off. Yeah. And if someone if if you're listening out there and you're a GM and you're in the Brantford area. And you want to talk about something, you just uh, drop us a line on Facebook or Instagram. We don't have a Twitter. We don't like Twitter. I've, gi- I've almost given up on Twitter. Have you? Almost. Yeah. Almost. But uh, if you're on, if you're only on Twitter and you want to get in touch with us, uh, you can check out uh, DM Jeremy. Uh, we'll get you to me, and we can get you on the podcast. That it? I think that's it. Is that it? We always end with good night, Dick. So, uh, good night, Dick. Good night, Dick. Good night, Dick. Good night, Dick.